Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at www.wcev1450.com. We are a, uh, a wonderful talk show. Uh, we broadcast from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois, from 6 to 7 p.m. Central every day. And you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on uh, wherever, you, wherever you are on social media. So if that's Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. And you can also find our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. And that's at that same handle, at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, we are off to another great edition of this fast, well, probably the fastest hour in radio. Um, and one of the things that we're going to talk about in this first segment of tonight's program is weekend Islamic schools. Uh, these carry a lot of importance for a number of reasons. Uh, there are quite a few Muslim students who do not attend Muslim schools. Uh, they're in public schools, and they get their information about uh, their religion from weekend schools. So Sound Vision, uh, as you know, Radio Islam is a Sound Vision production. Sound Vision is taking the lead and offering some training, uh, some very much needed training, uh, lesson development, classroom management, uh, all the things that are necessary for a successful program. And that's going to be this coming Saturday. But we had a conversation uh, in-house uh, between the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig, assistant producer here, Wajkhan, uh, Khan, and oh, Dina. But they had a, a really great conversation just talking about the merits of weekend schools and uh, just, just all that entails. So we're going to slide on into that and, uh, and listen to that conversation. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. I am here with Wahaj Khan, who is youth organizer for Sound Vision, and also with Dina Habal, who is a team member at Sound Vision, as well as Justice for All. Assalamu alaikum, how are you guys doing? Waalaikum salam. I'm doing well. Doing cool. well too. So I figured out we would talk about our experiences at Sunday school. Uh, first of all, as students, and then later for those of us who went on to teach and mentor kids or whatever, um, to kind of get ready for the event that's coming up that Sound Vision is hosting, which uh, Wahaj will tell us about a little bit later. It is called the Weekend... Weekend School Teachers Training Institute Day. Okay, and it's on Saturday? It's this Saturday, this April Saturday. 28th. Cool. So we'll get to it specifically a little bit later, but let's talk a little bit about... You know, start out with sharing our experiences, inshallah. So I went to Sunday school at uh, Islamic Foundation a long mm. time ago. Uh, well, I went to a, a few different Sunday schools. I went to one at IFS. I went to one at CPSA. And then the last one I went to was called Web Foundation. It was in Naperville, Woodridge area. Um, I went throughout my whole life. But I also went to, like, full-time Islamic school. So I would go off and on um, between years. I went to CPSA Sunday School, College Preparatory School of America. Um, they don't have a Sunday school anymore. I don't believe so. But um, it was a, a decent experience. Um, I was a troublemaker. 
a kid, so uh, like I definitely, um, I think like the teachers had a unique experience with me being in their classroom. Okay, guys, tell me about what stands out to you um, as far as the good experiences that you had in Sunday school. What did what did Sunday school or weekend school, whatever you want, on Saturday or Sunday, what did they, what did they kind of get right? I think it depends on the Sunday school. Um, when I went to IFS and the CPSA Sunday school, I didn't have as much of a positive experience, I would have to say. Like, I can understand Arabic, but I couldn't read it. So, you know, I kind of cheated and I'd write the English version, you know, like write transliteration of the Quran and get by that way. But it was, I feel like it was more shamed there if you didn't understand something. And then later on, I went to Web Foundation, and that one was more inclusive. Um, and we went, you know, we would go out to Chicago. We went to different mosques. We did um, uh, donation drives, stuff like that. Went to nursing homes. So I feel like a more interactive Sunday school was, you know, I felt like it was more interesting and more me than just sitting in a classroom. What about um, as far as, like, making friends there and hanging out with the kids? I remember... One of my few good memories in the early years of Sunday school was we would all just go during break time and, like, play basketball in the gym. <laughs> that was, like, the coolest part. Um, but as far as, I mean, so what were you guys' experiences as far as socializing with the other kids that were there? Was it was that a part of it or was it not really a part of it? Yes, I feel like that's part one of the positive experiences throughout all of them would be, like, the friendships. I still have friends from each one of them till now. So I think just, you know, seeing each other each week and, you know, bonding over either, like, being stressed out you didn't memorize something or just like you know playing like on the park like you said stuff like that um yeah i feel like you you grow friendships if you go to weekend school like that time that you have like that you can that you're able to bond with students and like teachers that you can set as role models i think that's very crucial and essential you know not just like in the classroom going outside of the classroom that 30 minute break uh like and or like and adding with that 30 minute lunch you know that's important as well you know so uh, I definitely have friends that I chill with that I went to Sunday school with till today, you know. And a lot of people, I guess they friends that Muslim friends that they don't have throughout like their like regular school, you know, like they might not have any Muslim friends. They're able to develop a relationship with Muslim friends over the weekend, you know, and like create like a Muslim network. I guess we can start to get into, unfortunately, some of the bad experiences we may have had in Sunday school. Um, what was, what did Sunday school get wrong, in other words? I had one teacher that used to talk about Jahannam a lot, like hell. Like, she would always just talk about hell. And, like, it kind of scared me. I'm like, dude, like, I'm probably going to go to hell, you know, like, because this is pretty, this is some pretty scary stuff, you know, like, uh, like, like, and I was, I was scared, you know, I think I was like, I, like, I thought, like, this religion's scary, you know, and, like, like, I can't, there's no chill over here, you can't relax, you know, because if you do anything wrong, like, you go to go to hell, you know. So, like, especially if you're, if you're like told that at an early age, you know, and like that's your introduction to religion. Like, I felt like that's kind of damaging, you know. So, I feel like the content that um, that teachers teach, you know, and what they teach from, is very important. And then, like, how they answer questions as well is very important as well and very crucial and essential for like the foundation of like a Muslim youth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like for me. It's been a while, but from what I can remember would be, like, holidays. 
you know, they would talk about, like, Thanksgiving and Halloween and birthdays. And, like, you better not celebrate those things, you know. And here you have this little kid who, like, watches Halloween movies and stuff like that. And family does celebrate, like, Thanksgiving. So it kind of, like, confused you. And you'd go home and be like, ah, Mom, like, are we doing something wrong? And, like, I think also it's just the way they approach things. They don't make it easier. You can talk to them. Yeah. So I feel like... Um, if they were just more open-minded or just more compassionate, because you don't know where these kids are coming from. So, because I I taught a Sunday school later on in life, and um, we had kids from so many different backgrounds whose parents were at different levels and stuff like that, and you have to keep that in mind when teaching the kids. So, hmm. did you guys feel like your teachers that you had when you were little had? Um varying levels of like dedication or because because in my experience some of the teachers were like very dedicated and they were very good and some of them were a little bit more um laid back i guess and just not it seemed like it weren't that serious about it did you guys ha- get that too oh definitely mm-hmm. definitely like some like would be like they would come to class like you know what i mean like some were just like i think there was some don't some teachers just don't have that balance i feel like and some like or like they just go super hard and super strict or like they don't understand like this kid has weekday school like a week like a weekday school too you know and like one thing that i never understood is like why would you give that much homework when they, you know they can't when they when you know they're not going to do it you know like you're giving that much homework and 30 percent of the class is completing the homework you know like it doesn't make sense when, when you're doing that much you know like this is like out of like the, the full schedule i don't think like i don't think i ever did homework for weekend school for Sunday school. I don't think I ever did homework, like, once. Like, because, like, like, and neither did my parents know about it either that I had homework for weekend school. Then my parents <laughs> would ask me, I'd be like, do, you ha- uh, do they ever give you homework? I'm like, no, no, they don't have homework. They know I have weekday school homework, you know? But obviously, like, I had a homework, but I think one thing that we discuss, um, and I don't want to get too much into the program that um, that we're going to have a, a session on is the Islamic Essentials uh, of Teaching. I think that's what the session is called. Where, like, you know I mean, Sunday school teachers, they're faced with questions and stuff like that, that, like, they're not scholars, nor have they studied the religion, like, very in-depth and stuff like that, but they're regular-day Muslims, you know? So when they're going over, like, questions that, like, you know I mean, relate to, like, um, fiqh, how would you translate fiqh into English? Jurisprudence is the Jurisprudence, yeah. Basically, how to handle your everyday rituals as yeah so like when they're when kids when children ask questions like that um to like weekend school teachers i think one thing that you have to understand even when you're learning about the religion is how to say i don't know uh and once you can establish that uh that like you like you if you don't know how to if you don't know how to answer a question you don't have knowledge about a certain subject it's okay to say i don't know and come back to a person you know come back the following week um moving on to our experiences as teachers or administrators in Sunday school. I do have experience teaching in Sunday school for several years as an adult. Um, you too, Wahaj, I think? No, I never taught. Okay. Idina? Yes. Okay. How was your experience as a teacher as compared to a student? Did you feel like it was a good environment for teaching and, you know, the administration was helpful to the teachers and so on and the kids were receptive? Uh, I think so. Um, I, I, me and some friends were part of a group called Youth in Motion, and we created a Sunday school. Um, we it only ran for a year, but during my time teaching and running it, I feel like we tried to give the kids what 
we thought lacked in our experiences in Sunday school. So it was more play-based. Um, we did cooking classes every single week. Um, we would, you know, we even went out to sushi with some of the students. Like, we would do these kind of things with them and made it more, like, play-based. And um, like Wahaj said, if, if you didn't know an answer, that was a big thing of ours was to be like, I don't know, but I will find the answer for you. Because we, you know, none of us were scholars and stuff. So um, I, I, I thought it was, it was an, an interesting experience. And you do feel a lot of pressure that I never, you know, realized probably the teachers were feeling back then because you do have these young minds and you're in charge of giving them this um, knowledge. So, One of the first things I noticed in my experience teaching was that there was very little to ensure that the teachers were actually following the syllabus. It was almost like some teachers viewed it as like babysitting. For the look at they're babysitting the kids and telling them a few things about Islam and stuff, but there was nothing there was no mechanism there in place to really ensure that teachers are going by the book and that the curriculum is being taught. There was a curriculum it was there there was a syllabus there, but just how do we make sure that the teachers are following it? That was kind of one of the problems uh, how do you guys like but I want to ask both because I never taught some week in school but how would you guys control a classroom, you know? Like, how would you guys go about it? Like, how would you guys, like, plan for, like, the, like the like the classroom and stuff like that? How you guys do your lesson planning? And then after that, like, how would you control the classroom discussion and everything like that? Was it back and forth, or were you guys, like, mostly lecture? In the beginning, I taught, like, third and fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be honest, I think I was just too friendly in the beginning. Yeah. I was trying... I, was, I know what you mean. I was just trying to, you know like get the kids to like me and I thought that would like make mm-hmm. them follow my orders you know but I was just the so opposite, wrong actually. Uh, yeah <laughs> they just ended up basically like walking all over me mm-hmm. because they were t- because kids are smart you know they test you they test the they know how to test the limits you know mm-hmm. so yeah stuff yeah, what about you I'd say I'd say like looking back um establishing a clear like like you don't be mean but establishing like Rules right off the bat, yeah. yeah. Rules and boundaries, and you know you're going to be disciplined. These are the consequences, um, right? Like right off the bat from the beginning. Then later, if you do that, um, and you and you're a good teacher, they'll they'll uh, like you too, inshallah. Mm-hmm. I guess I had that same issue. I went in there and you know super nice to them, and they just walk all over you. <laughs> and we had like um, like different ages in our classes. Um, we would have, like, two teachers for each class, and it was more back and forth. So it wasn't like we were just lecturing. Um, we would do Islamic Jeopardy. Uh, we would tell stories but make the kids come up and, like, draw parts of that story on the board, um, stuff like that to keep them interested but also um, get them excited about learning, I guess. And I think, yeah, the biggest problem was also finding good curriculum, out there i think that was like one of our um, biggest struggles in the beginning and uh, eventually we figured it out but um between that and learning how to be stern but not um 
make them hate you, I guess. Like, you want them yeah. to feel comfortable talking to you. You want them to want to come back each week. I remember we had a 14-year-old girl, and at the end, she was like, oh, you know, I, I'm going to miss you guys. And you, like, create a bond with them. And she was telling us how she wanted, you know, wish it would go throughout the whole year because it was a summer program. I think, like, a lot of it comes to experience. Uh, one thing that I that I do say that I believe that I think, like, teaching is a talent and learning is a skill, you know, and you can develop talent, but, you know what I mean, but, like, it's, some people are just born with it, God-given, they're, they're just, like, really good teachers, and some people just kind of have to, like, learn how to teach, you know, um, like, just because you can learn something doesn't mean you can pass it on to another person, and I think, I, I do think, like, it takes, like, a certain level of wisdom to, like, be able to, like, pass that down, you know, so um, I definitely think that, like, you know, like, even though, like, Sunday weekend schools can be challenging uh, for, like, students that, like, they just hate sitting in the class and then coming back to it, and then uh, uh, teachers just being volunteers, um, but it's something that's going on for the last three decades. It's been consistent, and I think that, like, if we can make a mark on it and just, like, improve on the points that uh, need improvement, it's, like, it's good to see that, like, now there had there is some type of improvement, you know? I guess the commonality that I would see between my good experiences as a student and my good experiences as a teacher would be um, having the the course material be something that was genuine and challenging and not really just, you know, like simple, like filler material where there's, there, there's material that is actually engaging and challenging and meaningful and the teacher was interested in teaching it. And I feel like the kids they know just like you were saying Mahaj like they know if you know you don't want to be there or if you're like tired from the night before you know you didn't sleep well and then you're just like making them do more work and not really paying attention to them so I feel like we do have to pay more attention to how serious we are when you know teaching Sunday school because these are the next generation and you know passing along knowledge and it'll affect how they view religion as they get older. Now, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be complete without asking the famous Sunday school, weekend school question, which is how to further engage the parents. Okay. Now, like, what I see now is that, like, okay, when it comes to weekend weekday schools, you know, so, like, parents will be super, super engaged. And I've seen this with, like, working with youth, I've seen this with a lot of parents where they'll be super engaged with their weekday schools, making sure they have good grades and stuff like that. But then as soon as it comes to weekend school, like, they, it's like their escape route. They're like, okay, man, I think I have to teach this kid about religion, you know? So what I'm going to do is just, I'm just going to drop him off and pick him up. I think parents themselves have to take... Um, the religion in consideration understand understand the importance of it and one thing that like i'm just gonna say that it doesn't relate to weekend schools but it relates to understanding and knowing knowledge is that those of course these are young kids that are beginning to understand knowledge you know be- beginning to understand like this religion this theme you know but like that's something that parents have to advance advance themselves as well you know like a kid's only like if a kid will learn better once he see his parent learning too you know so if like if a parent is teaching is taking some type of course some type of class to advance their knowledge you know mm-hmm. and maybe like um having the parents incorporate what they're like learning in sunday school back at home so if they're learning you know lessons on sharing like at home you know talk to them about it and 
bring up the topics they are learning in school or if they're learning Arabic or Asura, have them do that at home too. So then it's not just that one day a week, you know, so it's just, it's a constant, uh, it's constantly in their face and, you know, they're constantly exposed to it. I feel like that would help because one day a week is kind of hard to expect the kid to be um, fully knowledgeable about the subject if they're not having anyone at home helping them out with that. All right. So, Wahaj, tell me the event that SoundVision has, has coming up, the Weekend yeah. School Teachers, basically a seminar. Tell me first, what were the problems or the issues that you guys were aware of going on in the Sunday school, the weekend school system? Mm-hmm. Um, what were those issues or problems that or shortcomings that caused you guys to organize this event? Um, I think one thing that we, like Brother Abdul Maliki told me was the president of Sound Vision is that one day he went to he had to speak at a Sunday weekend school graduation a Sunday school graduation and he said he met a girl uh she's and he said she looked miserable she looked exhausted she really didn't want to be there so he asked her like how she was feeling and she said that uh she pointed at the window and she's like there was like there were three stories high and she said I just want to jump out of the window and fall out of there you know and so uh he came up to me and sh- shared the idea he's like okay one thing that like the youth have been going through or one curriculum that they have going on one engagement that they have going on is weekend schools you know like no matter what children are just forced to go there regardless if they want to go they don't want to go they're forced to go there you know so um but if that's like the three hours that they have throughout the whole week that islam is mentioned the prophet's name is mentioned that allah's name is mentioned you know then like you gotta take that two three hours and make the most out of it you know and like if we're not taking advantage of that then like it's it's like wasting like the whole the whole youth and everything like that those three hours are being wasted and like those three hours like like could be very effective and could affect the rest of the week or those three hours could just be another three hours that they just come because they have it feels like some type of chore to them and they come in and come out they don't get nothing from it so it starts with like the the fundamentals so it starts with teachers you know um main thing the main thing that i felt like what we, I wanted to focus on was humor. So that's why the main thing, the first thing we did was we contacted Bob Ali. Got Bob Ali. For those of you who don't know, Bob Ali, he's, he's a, a comedian. He has plenty of YouTube videos about Umma films and has done a lot of youth work before. And he's also a teacher as well. He's, he, he, he trains teachers as well. Secondly, uh, we wanted to focus on content. You know, a lot of the books that we look over in weekend schools, they're super old you don't need that big fat thick book unless you're going really deep into like the prophet's life, you know. But you're trying to just you're at at an early age. You're trying to just teach the basics to a child who the prophet was, who was he as a person, what was his characteristics. That big fat thick book is not gonna teach him that, but it'll it'll overwhelm the child, you know. So that's why content and content relevancy. That's why we're going over that. You can have a small little pamphlet. Give that child that give that child that pamphlet and he'll learn all the characteristics about the prophet peace be upon him through that pamphlet so content and con- uh, content consistency and relevancy is also another factor we're going over as well um one thing that we want to go over as well is that a lot of these weekend school teachers uh they don't understand the that a lot of these kids go to weekday schools they go to public schools the pu- the culture of a public school is super different than whatever you see in the weekend school. I say that as someone who has been to weekend schools, and you guys probably can probably say the same as well. So we need. That's why we invited Brother Uqab Hussein. He teaches at a public school in the city of Chicago. 
he's a principal he's going to be teaching uh like how to maintain discipline and like control the classroom as well because teachers need to understand like yo like they're going based off the culture they've seen in the classroom when the culture over here the of the public school classroom is very very and completely different you know so uh trying to understand like how like the public school classroom like works and stuff like that and how like based on that we can make our teaching more effective based on what a student sees five days throughout the week thirdly i think i think it is thirdly um teaching methods so what are your teaching tools are you doing like classroom activities how are you engaging students how are you teaching you know there are multiple ta- multiple ways you can teach lecturing is like not the best way like for example my attention spend is probably five minutes like and it's supposed to be 10 but it's five you know but like may god help me you know but like you know i mean like most like yours is probably like how much is your attention span, Ibrahim? Oh, it, dep- it depends on the subject, but really, not it's probably not like, as much I feel as like it's thirty like minutes. Be. It's probably no, 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 thirty no, no. minutes. It's it's way under thirty. What about you, Dino? Know? Well, like you said, it depends on the subject. If it's something I'm not interested in, I'll listen, and then you know you start zoning out. Yeah, well, they say attention span attention spans go by age most of the time. You know, so mm-hmm. like say like okay, if you're teaching a ten year old, if you talk for ten minutes straight, after those ten minutes. Bam. Like, you know I mean, he loses his mind, his mind somewhere else, you know? So, like, t- your teaching methods, the way you teach, whether you're lecturing for, like, five minutes or ten minutes and then doing something discussion-wise, classroom activity, that's going to help as well. Salma Ahmed from uh, MEC is going to be teaching that as well. Um, going back to the uh, how to say I don't know or, like, t- asking Islamic quen- uh, Islamic questions, Asfar uh, he was he graduated from Benedictine University uh, with a degree in education, and he's now, and he's also an imam as well. So he's an imam and a teacher. So he's going to talk about, like, how you can teach and answer those challenging questions at the same time in, like, an educational setting. There's many more subjects that we're going to uh, probably missing. Oh, with Aisha Lamin, uh, about Tarek's wife, the host of Radio Islam, who's not here right now, uh, his wife will he's be teaching. He's on his way back. He's on both, his way they're back. They're both traveling together. Yeah. They're both traveling together. But he'll, uh, uh, Aisha, I mean, she's going to be teaching meaningful lesson planning. So how do you prepare for the classroom? You know, uh, a lot of these teachers, they don't like, they don't have any, like, um, like background in teaching and stuff like that. So like, how, like, what do I do on my first day? Like, if I'm, if I'm, if my topic is islamic studies if my topic is about the pro- the prophet's life and stuff like that how do i go about it how do i prepare myself for the classroom so these are all like a lot of questions uh that like we have yet, yet to answer but it's a discussion that's we're beginning to discuss and we're at the end we're going to also have like a discussion where like it's a panel session where it's just going to be like a straight up q a where teachers can ask any questions they want to the presenters and um they can get those answered as well so um it's definitely going to be great uh, it's April 28th at Islamic Foundation. Um, main thing for me, I'm sorry I've been talking for so long. It? What time is it at? It's going to start at 9.30 a.m. And then it should go on. It will we'll be done by 5 p.m. And we're, we're on a pretty tight schedule because there's so much to go over. Um, the main the main reason, um, over, or the overview of how I look at it is that um, a person's foundation, where he starts from, takes him a long place in life, you know? So, like... A lot of the stuff that, like, a, that weekend school teacher might have taught me when I was little, and I practice that today, you know, like, when like when I was taught to give zakat or sadka, give charity, and, like, a week, I remember when a weekend school teacher taught, taught me that, when I give that, like, I mean, I might not remember that they get, they taught me that, but thing is, like, they get, like, the reward of whatever I do, whatever good deed I do, whatever they're taught, you know? Yeah. So, I think that like if like we can like break down on that like you know like these young kids whatever they're taught at this age 
and if they move on forward after the life and be engaged in their like colleges and universities and work life and everything like that and be more and how they're engaged in their normal lives outside it starts with the foundation of where we built you know and that's in weekend school youth groups and all that um it's very important that we make the most of like those two three hours of every week and if we can it'll create a much better stronger and foundation you know uh for like muslims moving forward and like not only for like muslims but like the future of this country as well Yes, yeah, so it sounds like you're saying that the solution to improving the weekend school system is not only just to increase the teacher's knowledge of mm-hmm. the dean, which is possible to a certain extent, but we're not yeah. going to have all scholars or like, yeah. teaching. But more importantly, maybe to organize everything and to bring in um, strategies and techniques from mainstream public schools and actually just yeah. build better teachers, period. Yeah. Um, and like I think is that we are in a place where like we can actually have these discussions now, and like we realize that like like just putting someone in like a classroom for like a, an hour, you know, and like just saying like okay, like now these kids are gonna learn. That's not how it works, you know. Cool. Sounds good. Uh, the event is at a Saturday. Islamic April Foundation Villa Park, April nine thirty a.m. to five p.m. Nine thirty a.m. to five p.m. And it's free for all Sunday school. It's absolutely free. school teachers. Yep. Cool. And babysitting is there as well. Oh, good. Yep. Well, Jazakallah Khair. Thank you all for being with us. All right, Radio 7 family. Hope you are enjoying uh, this episode. We're going to go ahead and take a short break, though, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. Assalamu alaikum. This Saturday, April 28th, Sound Vision will be hosting a weekend school teachers training day. This will be a day-long seminar focused on training teachers and administrators to build a better weekend school system. For thousands of Muslim children, weekend school is crucial in forming their perception of Islam. If you're a teacher, please attend this free event. Join us at 9.30 a.m. at Islamic Foundation in Villa Park. You can register at soundvision.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. All right, Radio Islam family, if, well, as a matter of fact, if you're new, make sure that you are keeping up with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And you can find us wherever you get your podcasts at that same handle, at Radio Islam USA. All right, we're going to get into our second leg of the show. Um, a few weeks ago, as a part of our movie talk segment, um, Bubba Murray and I, uh, you all know Bubba. Uh, award-winning filmmaker and uh, we had a conversation about a recent trip that he took to Bangladesh as a part of a delegation to document the uh, Rohingya refugees and so we had a great conversation about it but unfortunately we just did not have enough time there's so much more to talk about and uh, Ibrahim did the follow-up so we have more for you and you are definitely going to enjoy this. So we're going to go ahead and get into that right now. That, that was rough. He talked about um, 
I guess the perception, the difference between when you first got to Bangladesh from the United States, you know, it's a different environment, everything. Can you compare that to once you're in Bangladesh, um, every day going from the outside world or whatever into this camp? Did you feel like you were making a big transition into like a, a whole new place? Yes, actually, because where we stayed uh, in Cox Bazaar, it, our hotel was right off the beach. So in one sense, it seemed like a, a, it was it was a touristy area. You go in, you have people in the hotels that are dressed up, ready to go out to dinner or just see the sights. Again, very touristy. Uh, you, you feel like you see a lot of expats. Then as you made your way down this, or as you made your way towards the camps, first you'd go through the rural areas. You'd see a lot of the schools, um, temples, uh in a sense, just typical rural life, what you would expect. Uh, but as you get closer, then you start to see, which I found interesting, the the branding. You'd start to see more logos for the World Food Organization or the um, United Nations, uh, well, for the UN or the, or for other refugee programs. The, the closer you get, then then you get into this little market area. Which is, I would say, maybe now a mile away from the camp, or you're just about to hit the border of that camp area. So when you see people on the sides of the roads, uh, you've got your typical shops uh, for food, drink, but people are also selling a lot of the rations that they received in the camp. And you can tell because you can see the packaging. And so it's the blue and white. Um, rice why, why do you think they're doing that? Uh, people need money. I mean, when you're in the camps, you can't work. I mean, you, they're they're refugees. You know, they yeah. they can't get a job. Uh, education is very limited. So, in order to, well, th- and this is what I'm assuming, just in, in order to get more staples uh, in camp and try and survive. Uh, that's that's just one one of the things you're, you just have to, to do. use that to barter for other things. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, but once you hit that, that's how you felt, okay, I'm definitely hitting a different zone. It's starting to change. And then, yeah. then, then you started to see, as I said, a lot more of different types of, uh, signs, uh, let's say for doctors beyond borders, little outposts where you'd stop, I guess where the employees or, or volunteers, would I guess do their training and then they would uh, before they would go directly to the camps and then once you got right onto the camps you would then see a lot of the houses or the 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 dwellings in the distance in the hills uh, in the horizon let's say uh, right off this right off the street so it's it sort of the the camps in sense were walled off but it would be like yeah, past the walls you'd see all the the refugee housing, and then you finally make your way to the entrance to whatever specific camp you're going to, and that's still kind of muddled as far as you're just off the side of the road. It's usually right by some sort of distribution center for food, dirt roads, um, trucks parked people mulling about um so the, the area was divided up into like different camps yes uh and and so 
being being someone new there, I wasn't sure exactly where each camp was, but you would just find a different entrance to a different camp, and then uh, you work your way from from the opening of the camp, and then you can just work your way in. If I were to ask you to like describe kind of the mood or the tone that you felt when you first went in the camps, or after you went there, you know, second or third or fourth time. How would you describe that? It'd be like, you know, is there a sense of relief in these people? Is there heartache? Is there panic? How would you describe that? I would say they were. It was solemn. Uh, there, there was. It, it was dark, a dark feel. But it wasn't. You didn't feel hopeless. Hmm. Uh, you didn't feel. You didn't. You didn't feel. The sense of doom. I think there's more of a sense of in, of endurance, of uh, survival, if if you can say that, if you if you can put that in terms of a feeling. Uh, th- there was people were always moving. There there was uh, there was life in the camps. You know, people were making things, uh, and I, I mean by they were constructing houses. It's always expanding. Till there seemed to always be a job to be done, whether it's collecting water, doing laundry, uh, again, building roofs. Uh, people were doing something, and then I think being a outsider, you were a grateful distraction from what was going on, from that daily toil though so as soon as we walked into the camp and this is when I say we uh, the first two days it was just me and my translator and a guide to take us through the camp people still would just stare right at us and like I said I just being a large six foot two black man you know with dreads uh, I stood out a little bit so people definitely said okay who's this guy who's got a camera and people would either follow me or they would just watch me as I walked by. I, as I said before, I got a lot of stares, a lot of looks. But I, but I think it was a distraction that people were now used to. And in some ways, that's good because I think people are more prepared to try and get their stories out. Because now... And, and maybe that they realize, okay, there are people outside that are taking interest into this. So I'm hoping that's how they perceived it, that people are there because they want to see what's going on so they can tell others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned you interviewed many people, interacted with the kids. Um, we were talking earlier that you don't feel comfortable um, turning it into a voyeuristic kind right. of ordeal, right? Yeah. Uh, but that being said, is there anything um, that stands out from those experiences that you still carry with you. Yeah, again, what what stood out to me is just how eager and how willing people were to tell their story. So my strategy in getting the stories was, again, these are all very tragic. And I just wanted to be at the point where to, again, to allow people to tell it. So I wasn't necessarily trying to force people to say something or I wasn't trying to shape their words. It was more like... I would set up and then just just try to be polite and respectful. Are you willing to tell your story? And then ask a few uh, 
pointed questions, but general enough where you could you you could go on uh, to tell your tale, tell how you came here, tell what you experienced. But I, I just wanted people to tell it in their own words. I wasn't trying to uh, guide them to get what I specifically wanted. I just wanted them to say what they wanted to say. And so what I found is, again, people were very willing to tell the story. Uh, and almost a momentum built up where once I had the camera up and I was talking to one person, more people would join in. And they really, then they wanted to tell their story and they kind of jump in. So when when I was first doing it as a group format, it, it was just a little more difficult because you'd have one person after another telling their story, answering the questions and reacting. And it, again, it was great for them. Uh, but But then the filmmaker... Part of me jumped in and said, you know, I don't necessarily have a lot of places I can cut to because I've got one right after the other, slightly overlapping, telling their stories. But but it's the emotional reactions that that you don't want to cut off. And again, these people are telling about how they've lost loved ones and they're getting emotional. They're crying. I'm not going to stop them and say, oh, let's take that again. Let's take it back one more time. So but but. But people were willing to just relive these horrific events. And that that really stood out to me because they weren't trying to hide it. They they owned what the situation was and they wanted to change it. One more thing that stood out to me with what you just saying is um, the kids that you saw all over the place. Mm-hmm. It kind of seems like kids will always act like kids yeah. no matter where they are. Did you get the experience that inside the camp as well, that the kids were still acting like kids oh, normally yeah. would? Or was there a sense of, you know, these kids have been, like, beaten down and just traumatized? No, it, it was like kids were kids wherever they are. And, in fact, the funny thing is they also have the same attitude as they get a little older. So the little kids, they would still run around and get at they were learning English, so they loved to say, hello, how are you, hello, and they just run up, say it, and then when you say it back to them, they start giggling and run away. There was also, then you've got your kids who are young, but little troublemakers, like I was taking shots of one of the delegation's meetings, and it was at the bottom of a little hill, and so some of the kids were, you know, they were kicking a little dirt. You know, they were they were watching the, the, the mug clog, the clogs of mud, you know, kind of roll down the hill, right, you know, right at my feet. Then I look at up, up at them and, again, they run away. Or if I was trying to take a shot of a, uh sometimes kids would hide behind uh, walls or, or uh, laundry. And then I look back and they hide and come back. So, yeah. Th- they could always they could find some sort of fun they could find happiness uh there was this there's also this sport that they were playing so you've got the older kids now so the, so those are let's say the three four year olds you've got your nine ten twelve year olds they're out there playing sports they're they have a variation of soccer and volleyball where you just use your feet or your or your head and then you kick the ball over the net so they had a they had an area like that where a lot of the kids were playing, but that's kids are going to find something to do, and and then some of the older kids, they they did have cell phones, 
and they, they people did have smartphones, so you had the kids who were taking shots of me, and then again they were they were cool teenagers. You know, they 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 would give a little kind of hard pose as you take a shot of them, but you know, they'll smile back at you, you know, there's mutual respect. Uh in fact, the point in which the little kids were goofing around and throwing some of the mud, then one of the older kids, and I, I would say he'd be about fourteen or fifteen then he came down and told them, you know, they need to act, you know, they need to behave themselves. And then they stopped. And then he stood and gave me a smile. I let me know that he helped me out. And, you know, I got a shot of him. But, again, I, I feel like with anything, if you take a general interest in people, especially with kids or, or teenagers, if they feel you're sincere, then they'll treat you with respect. You know, not trying to fake anything. And even if I was uncomfortable or and I felt comfortable, but if you're, but I think it's just as long as you're genuine, uh, you'll have a positive interaction. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, amazing that they'll always be able to find some way to play. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just and, and and I say play more so than just be happy because they're like they're taking their environment, whether it's like a, a bombed out house in Syria or you know a a, a mud soaked refugee hut. But they're able to take that environment and turn it into something in their own world where they can derive some sort of pleasure from it. Mm-hmm. And, no, that is amazing. Because you today you can allow just such little things, and, and those of us in developed countries, to just bring us down. And we can find so many ways to complain and blame people for things where you've just got these young children who have nothing but their imagination and they're still able to make something positive come from that. Yeah. I guess that kind of transitions us into what I want to talk about for, uh, about documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've made other documentaries, but you worked on documentaries before. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit? What well, those? the main one I did, uh, was actually a Chicago based documentary and it was about roller derby. <laughs> so I've I followed a few of the members of the local Chicago team, the Windy City Rollers, and uh, you know saw what their daily life was like, and then juxtaposed that with their their time as skaters, and just so you could see the difference and and how the uh, stress of being a derby uh, athlete can affect your normal life so that and that that was that was a great experience so i guess my question would be um do you when making a documentary do you go into it with a story and you or do you try to craft a story or does the story kind of make itself as you go along i would say that there's a little bit of both when you do the documentary. I definitely go in with a story that I expect to tell. And other and, and I think that's that's fair. It allows me to get a framework for the story, the structure, and then when you're trying to get trying to uh, ask questions of your subjects, it it can, it makes everything more focused and pointed. So I have no problem admitting, yeah, I go in with the story I want. However, you just have to be open to know you have to be open to 
changing your story because you may not get the answers you want. So actually an example would have been with the roller derby documentary. I really just wanted to talk about how, again, the women are sacrificing and as and it was also as they were leading up to uh, one of the big uh, matches between one of their rivals. So we just wanted to see them train and there's, I expected them to say how much they love it, but you know, they're going to give it up. Well, they'll give everything up just for that fight. But it ended up turning into something where I interviewed one of one of the uh, skaters' sister, who was also a coach, and she really thought that her sister had been in Derby too long because her sister had been injured. She was just coming off of, I think, she was coming off of a concussion, and so. Uh, the coach was saying that being in roller derby is like being in an abusive relationship. It's just you know you should stop, but you can't help it. You keep going back. And she, I mean, but she was genuinely concerned for the health of her sister and genuinely wanted her to stop. And so that that was not the direction I was going. I I, I was thinking of it more just upbeat, fun, you know, raw girl power film. And then this became closer to something about someone who does not recognize when they should hang up the skates. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, initially I was a little hesitant to keep going down down that direction, but that's where the story was, and that's what was compelling, and you had that, you you had a really great conflict with that. So that being said, uh, you just have to be open to letting the people tell their story because you're going to find something no matter what, that's a little bit deeper than you originally went into. I think we find that, I think you can find that with anything. You know, you know, you, you expect something, but then the reality tends to be much more surprising than you thought. And, and I think people find that just when they talk to their friends or family, and then they open up and they realize, oh, you've been through all these trials and tribulations. I had no idea. That's what I feel do- uh, documentary filmmaking is like. You have an idea of what you want, but then just if you leave yourself open, you're going to get so much more. So what kind of ideas or questions did you uh, go into this trip with? So this one we went more about... Uh, I mean, we all, we all know kind of the situation that's happening there. It's very tragic. Um, we call it a genocide, although the international community hasn't really done that officially yet, I think. Mm-hmm. They're starting to a little bit. Um, so So we knew kind of what was going on. As a documentarian, from that perspective, what kind of uh, direction were you expecting? What what ideas or questions did you go on? Well, I was going more from the idea of just chronicling uh, their uh, their experiences and having it be more of like where if we get a volume, just a number, uh, just a, a, a volume of people sharing similar stories, but they all come from different parts of the camp you realize that just to legitimize what they're going through so that so so i'll say my my strategy was again just in a sense to ask the same question to a lot of different people and then we just get go going through with just a a lot of different answers to that same question where we might um have uh uh like the, the type of film where where you, you might have 
eight or ten different people just giving different um, – sharing different stories. But as an audience member, you go in with with a narrow uh, set of questions that are being asked but with a, but with a wide range of answers. So, so that was – that was the strategy going in. So that's why when I said when I initially started, we were giving some group interviews where we would ask the same question of two or three people. In an example of a question would have been, did you see any of your family members get killed as you were escaping uh, Myanmar? So very simple question, but that leads itself open to Generally, yes. And then they will explain what they saw and how they felt. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty open-ended. Now, it, it was great in the sense that people were very honest and they were really willing to share their stories. Uh, but the challenge was when you were this – is, this is just a production thing – when you're going one after another – that's when I felt like sometimes the people would overlap in their stories. And when they were getting so emotional, like I said, I, I, I couldn't stop them. I, you, you, I felt it would, be dis, it would be disrespectful to stop someone when they're trying to tell that story. So that's how we started out with that. And we moved, then we moved to just interviewing individuals, asking similar questions. But uh, that, that was the strategy I took with this one, having sort of just a list of questions that we go, and then we'll get varied responses from a wide range of individuals. Mm-hmm. Was there any unexpected turn um, as far as the story um, forming itself the way you thought it would? As story wise, I wouldn't. I would say no, and I only and I preface this preface this with the fact that I don't speak Rohingya, so I could only gauge what they were saying by body language and uh, their expressions. And because I wanted them to be able to tell their story, I didn't press my translator to translate as they were going. So when people were telling long stories, I'd let them go. But what I found is one time when a man was talking about uh, suffering uh, injuries, I think he got blown up by a landmine, and he pulled up a little girl. So, mm-hmm. the, And I may have mentioned that before, but yeah. when, when he brought up this girl to show all the wounds she had sustained on the trip, that was shocking. Again, I didn't know what they were saying, but from body language, from, from looking at them, it uh, that was very moving. And then it was just other times when people would run to other huts, run down the road to just bring people to tell their story. Uh, an, another question we would ask is, you know, what type of documentation did you have when you came over? Because that's an issue in for Rohingya to prove that they're from Myanmar. They have to have certain types of documentation, but it's almost impossible for the have it to have it. But people started running to different houses, running to different people to bring people to show all the different documentation. And they were coming one after another while we were still interviewing people. So we started out with just, you know, two people next to each other. Not a lot of people in the background. But as one person was telling their story, word had gotten out that we were 
that we were asking these questions. And next thing you know, you look up and you've got 10, 15 people sort of in the background huddling behind uh, behind the speaker. So that, again, led us to say, okay, we can't just keep doing this. We can't do the questions in group form because we keep getting mobbed. And so that's when we shifted our approach and how we were going to frame it and shoot it. But, yeah, I, I would say how people kept coming up with more stories and volunteering stories, not people we asked, just people who were who were being, um, again, brought into the film, that was really surprising to me. So the challenge will become, once we translate all of this, to see if the actual, the actual stories, how they tie together. Yeah, are there... Um... So your strategy for making a documentary, your process for making documentary is kind of to go in with a set of ideas and then you would say just let it play out? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. So, and then again, it depends on the documentary. Like this, this type of filming is getting a little more challenging. So it's because, kind of a balanced approach, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, but it, it just depends on the environment. Like I said, when I'm dealing with the roller derby, I was a roller derby fan so, and I understood the language. So there, there was there was a little bit of geekdom involved, where I had fun being around it. I I knew more about what they were doing, and I mean, I I physically knew where they were because they were in Chicago. I understood them, and you know, I have a sports background, so it was easier to craft this sort of story. And it was also it was also more lighthearted. So. So I probably came in on that one with a more of a focused story that I wanted to tell uh, because as a fan of a sport or something, I knew what I wanted to see. This one was a little different because, again, I'm telling somebody else's – well, both times you're telling someone else's story, but this is a very serious situation, and I want to make sure I'm giving them credit and and, and respecting the – respecting what they're going through uh and then mixed with the challenge of the language the location um just we have limited time when we're with them because you can only be at the camps for a certain amount of hours physically it's just demanding setting up breaking down doing all that stuff in 100 degree weather there there were a lot of external issues that made this one a lot more challenging but but the main thing was because I wanted to make sure that uh, I was fair in allowing them to give their story. I I just focused on having set questions, but again, open, but open ended enough where they could guide where it would end up. Yeah. All right. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, we hope to have you back. All right, Radio Islam family, we have come to the end of another show. Thanks for tuning in. We want to thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. We thank our assistant producer on the boards here. Uh, as a matter of fact, producer for tonight's show, Ibrahim Bey, the impressive one. Uh, we want to thank you once again for tuning in. And we also, who do we have to mention? Oh, yes, our executive producer extraordinaire, Abdul Malik Mujahid. And I am your host, Tariq Alameen. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision, Inc. 
And with that, we are going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.